church. It's really good to see all of you guys here today and to know that some of you have traveled as far, even as far as Abbotsford, just to be here. You know, I mean, it is such a privilege to be able to worship with the body of Jesus Christ. And I hope that during this time, you know, as it, we continue to resume meeting together, we will never forget the immense joy that it is and the privilege that we are given that many people in persecuted parts of the world do not have, you know, on a regular basis, not just because of COVID-19, but on a regular basis to be able to gather together, to sing praises to Jesus and to just sit and to listen to our Father and our God. You know, church, as Hamish said, that today we are going to be concluding our two-part mini-series called Racism, Rioting, and Redemption, which we began last week. Now, last week when I was uh, preaching, we talked about racism in an individual sense, That is uh, what happens as people have these tendencies in their own heart and where it comes from. We talked about Canada's own ugly history when it comes to racism, especially with residential schools and other things of that sort. I explained that also racism is ultimately a sin problem, and that is something that we as Christians uniquely need to communicate to this world. And I pointed out three things that the Bible actually teaches about this sin problem. One is that with regards to racism, Why racism is so wrong is that it's an assault on the dignity and the glory of God who stamped his image on human beings. Second thing that we learned was that race is actually God's idea, the nations of the world, but racism is ours as a result of our sin. And the third thing also that we learned was that racial reconciliation comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we will follow up and look at that and explore that a bit more today. Now, Even though we live in a culture today that does not accept the Bible's authority in people's lives, we still at least live in a culture that today is trying very hard to get rid of racism, and that's a good thing in our culture. Now, I know that perhaps if you've been following the news, you've heard a lot of people and governments and statements being released talking about rooting out what is called systemic racism here in Canada and the U.S. and also abroad. So, for example... You Just last month, if you look at what Justin Trudeau, Trudeau was saying as he addressed the nation, he mentioned that, for example, systemic racism is an issue right across our country in all of our institutions, including, he says, in all of our police forces, including in the RCMP. Now, this is interesting, right, because you have the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, on the very same day giving an interview to the media saying this, I have to admit, I really struggle with the term systemic racism. I've heard about five or ten different definitions on TV. I think that if systemic racism is meaning that racism is entrenched in our policies and procedures, I would say that we don't have systemic racism. Now, there's been a lot of debate going back and forth in the public sector, especially at the higher levels, about what this means and whether or not it actually exists. Now, I think Lucky is actually right in noting that there are numerous different definitions of what systemic racism is. For example... If you look at what Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University, Andrew Gillespie, says, she actually defines it this way. Uh, Systemic racism refers to the rules, practice, and customs once rooted in law. These may have changed over time, resulting in a facade of equality, but the residual effects reverberate throughout entire societal systems. Okay, so that's, that's one definition of it. You look at, for example, the Aspen Institute's Roundtable for Change, Community change, they define it this way. A system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. 
Now, no matter what the definition is, you can see there's already some commonalities in these definitions, but most of them agree that when you're talking about a system, it doesn't mean that every single person in the system is an overt racist. In fact, they would say that what happens actually is many of these systems are unconscious and that some people either don't realize they're being racist or by not speaking up against these systems or acknowledging that they are in these systems are continuing to perpetuate these systems of what they would call that support systemic racism. Now, Canadians actually lately have been, um, I think there's a, there's a trend as well in our country as well, really to try to root this out and to get at the roots of it and to say it's not just a U.S. problem, but it's a Canadian problem as well. So, for example, if you read what Darren Thorne, a constitutional and human rights lawyer from Ontario, has to say in one of his articles he published commenting on our penal system, he actually noted this. The annual report of the Federal Office of the Corrections Investigator has consistently noted that the incarceration rate of black Canadians is approximately three times that of their proportion of the general Canadian population. That despite the fact that data also reveal that black people are no more likely to commit a crime than any other racial group. So as a human rights lawyer, what he's doing in his articles, he's drawing attention to the fact that there's something disproportionately wrong here, even in our country. CBC News has also picked this up lately. They noted, for example, that 36% of the people killed in encounters with the Toronto police between 2010 and 2017 were black. And it's not just blacks, people. For example, if you look at this in Canada, in the career sector, for instance, you also see evidences of something not being right under the surface. There was actually a study published in 2016 conducted at the University of Toronto that examined the attempts basically of racial minority groups attempting to avoid discrimination in applying for jobs by engaging in a practice of what is called resume whitening. And by that, you mean erasing any things or indicators in your resume that could communicate to a potential employer that you actually belong to a minority group. Now, this is really interesting because the study that was conducted at U of T came to a very paradoxical conclusion. Actually, one of the strangest conclusions that they reached was that minorities with non-white backgrounds were actually at a significant disadvantage in applying for jobs at places that declared themselves to be pro-diversity employers. So what it shows, it said, with their study is that even though companies declare themselves to, pro to be pro-diversity, there is an unconscious bias in which even reviewing a resume or interviewing people for whether they be a fit results in people who are ethnic or immigrants being excluded from this in the job market. The medical sector is not a stranger to this as well. If you remember just last month, there was an uh, investigation launched by BC Health that Adrian Dix actually addressed talking about a strange, um, a terrible practice of healthcare workers who are playing a game in the ER in which native First Nations people coming in, they would guess at what level of alcohol that was in their blood and take bets on them. And it was really terrible when this hit the news and people found out about it. In Vancouver, for example, right in our city, a lot of people are unhappy with ICBC for the rising car insurance rates. But everybody has different opinions as to why this is actually happening. Now, some people are actually calling for statistics to be released correlating traffic accidents with ethnicity. One comment I read by someone reads this way. Everybody knows who the culprits are that are driving up our rates 
but nobody has the guts to say it. Don't give me the argument that there are no statistics on this. Now, if you live here in Vancouver, you know exactly what he's talking about, right? It's the stereotype of the terrible Asian driver. It's so well known, actually, in our city that you can actually go to Richmond today and many of these shops, and you can buy these parody magnetic you know, car stickers that look like the green N and the red L learner drivers, things that we have. There's a big C on it, and it's yellow, and basically means Chinese driver, complete with an ICBC sort of stamp on it. Well, it really looks like the real thing. And a lot of Asians, to humor the stereotype, laugh, stick this on their car, you know, I mean, just because they find it funny. You know, but it's the question that we have to ask is, is that true? I mean, I've heard it mentioned numerous times as well. You know, in 2011, there was actually a massive eight-year study that was put out about, that uh, went over uh, four million Canadian drivers. This long study to look at this and to try to answer this question, are immigrants to Canada actually worse drivers than Canadians? You know, what was interesting that they found in this study was that actually immigrants are far less likely to be involved in a car crash than the average Canadian who has grown up here has. In fact, the longer that you live here in Canada, including immigrants, the more likely they were to adopt reckless behavior and become worse drivers. So it's actually safer to have immigrants on the road than average people who have lived here a long time and perhaps are overly familiar with the system and have uh, too much confidence. You know, it's interesting because in case you're wondering whether that this is just a Canadian thing, I mean, four million drivers that they were looking at, Australia found the same thing as well. So if you look in Australia, the University of Sydney published just a year before that, they found that young Asian-born drivers were actually 45% less likely to be involved in a police-reported crash than their Australian counterparts. So you ask the question here, why does this stereotype exist? Why is there the big C for the Chinese driver? You know, some psychologists looking at the data here have tried to comment on this and explain what is going on in terms of a human phenomenon. They would argue and say that, well, when people are behind the wheel, they become more selfish, more aggressive, and they actually have less social inhibitions, and therefore uh, wrong things come out of them. It's actually very easy for a person who's behind the wheel to think that they are the best driver in the world, have a great view of their own driving skills, and that the mistakes other people make aren't just one-offs or accidents, but they will actually say, no, that's in you, and they attribute it to something that's innate in the other person. So when you make a mistake, it's just an accident. When somebody else makes a mistake, you think the worst of them and say, that must be in your DNA or in your blood. And so they attribute that to something. And an easy thing to attribute that is race. Now, look, I'm an Asian as well, and I, I know my community of people as well. Are there bad Asian drivers? Yes, there are. There are terrible Asian drivers. But in every culture group, there are terrible drivers as well. The question is, what causes us to have that unconscious bias, perhaps, to one particular people group or to single out immigrants and to think that they are this way? I think there's something that's deeper that's going on in the soul. You know, what's my point in all of this, highlighting these things? My point is this, is that even in Canada, a, a country that prides itself on its multiculturalism and being, uh, you know, a progressive and forward-going and so on, Racism exists in our structures as well, unconsciously sometimes or systemically, and it's in the thinking of the people. Now, the question is, will simply removing these structures that propagate and support racism 
help to end racism. And the question also for us as Christians is, does the Bible have anything to say about this systemic racism problem? I'd like to give you four things that I'd like to go through about what the Bible has to say, God's Word has to say about this issue. Number one is this. God's Word speaks against systems of sin. Now, I think it's really important for us to know that at the outset that the Bible speaks against both systems of sin and the destruction that these systems actually bring to people, as well as talking about individual personal sin. For example, let me show you something. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Okay? This proverb doesn't need much explanation. It makes sense in an individual sense. If you are lazy and you sin by not working and doing these things, you will reap the consequences of your individual sin. It's not only a sin against God, but you will have problems in this life. You won't be able to feed yourself. But other proverbs also mention about how hard work can actually be undone by other people's sin or systems of sin around you. For example, if you look at Proverbs 13, 23, it says this, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So here you actually have a case in the Proverbs in which you're working really hard and you are poor, but because of other people sinning against you and doing unjust things, your hard work and your efforts are taken away through injustice. Look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1 to 3. God comments on what happens in a society when sin is like this. Woe to those who decree iniquitous degrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? See, you see what God is accusing the Israelites here of. It's not just individual sin. He's talking about the fact here that they have created an unjust system that oppresses the poor, the widows, and the needy. This was really sinful corporately in God's eyes. And so he actually commands them in the book of Isaiah to repent of this and to turn back to him. For example, you read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, this is what he tells them to do. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Right? It's really clear all throughout the scriptures is that when you have systems of oppression in place, they must be corrected because justice is at the very heart of who God is. And even though not every single Israelite was guilty of direct oppression, at the same time, we see that they all actually suffer the consequences of God's judgment of the entire nation as the nation is actually defeated by the Babylonian army later and carried away into exile, just as he said would happen for their corporate sins. So is systemic sin, does God address sins corporately in a nation? Yes, he does. Second thing I want to say about what God's word also affirms, number two, God's word affirms the existence of both individual and corporate sins and what happens as a result of that. So, for example, most of us North American Westerners have a very individualistic mindset. And so we think that when we think about how a group of people suffer the results of other people's sins or the consequences of it, we think, 
how unfair is that? Like, how can that possibly be? You know what's so interesting about it is that the Bible, in speaking about this, addresses both kinds of sin and also the effects that happen to a society as a result of both kinds of sin. So, for example, you, get an, you, you can see in, when Israel was entering the Promised Land and they were conquering Jericho, they were told explicitly by God, take nothing for yourself, all the gold, silver, and all the goodies needed to go to the treasury of the Lord. But one man chose to sin against God, Achan, and he took some of these things and he hid it under his family's tent. Now, because of the sin, you realize afterwards how terrible it is for Israel. When they go to attack the next place, Ai, the Bible says that they were defeated and that in the defeat, actually 36 men were killed. As a result of this, you know, they go through a process of inquiry. God shows them that Achan is responsible and they take him and his whole family out and they actually stone them to death. Now, as North Americans, we look at that and we say, that doesn't seem to be very fair. Like, how could such a thing occur? You know, it was just one guy's sin. But what the Bible actually, I think, is teaching us is that it affirms and acknowledges that life is way more complex than simply saying, well, you sin and you're punished like this. Life doesn't work like that. Life is very complex. See, I think what the Bible is showing here or, or, or understanding is that in the complexities of life, we are not just the products of our individual actions. Yes, we're responsible for personal sin as well, but each of us also are the products of our choices as well as our parents that raised up in the society that we, went, uh, that we were brought up in. It's really interesting, right? Because many of us, let's say, who have good things in our hearts, you know I mean? Like, for example, saying, like, we don't want racist conduct today. That's a good thing. We are against, you know, oppression and injustice. That's a good thing in our society. But a lot of that, you know, comes not just from some sense of innate goodness in us, but the way that our society taught us to think. So if we want to accept the good that society has taught us, we should also accept the bad. There are some negative things I think our society has given us as well. So the two mix together and work together. Now, the question is, how do these two things work together? Like, how do they coexist, and what does the Bible teach about that? You know, John Calvin, the great reformer, also had to wrestle with these things himself as he struggled with how this worked. He actually addresses two biblical texts that seem to contradict each other. For example, Lamentations 5 verse 7 reads this, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Okay, Fathers sin, we bear the burdens of their sin. And then Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, that's really interesting, right? When you put these two texts together, you might ask the question, which is it? Does the Bible contradict itself? Are we punished for our own sins, or are we actually punished for other people's sins? So I think that the best way to do this, and I think Calvin is right as he wrestled through this question, is to realize that it's speaking about sin here from two different angles, but also two different angles when it comes to the punishment or the consequences of sin. I think when Lamentations is talking about our father's sin and we are bearing the results or the suffering as a result of that sin, I think it's talking about the temporal consequences of sin. That is the sin and the way that it affects us in the present day now. In other words, we live in a fallen world. 
And as a result of sinful choices of people around us, even though we may not have done anything personally, we are affected by what they do. You might have come from a family that has an abusive parent, for example, or you might have lived in a country that oppressed you and stole your things by force, okay? That was not your own decision, but you suffered the effects of the corporate sin of people around you. I think that's what it's talking about. In Ezekiel 18.20, it's also talking about the consequences of sin, but the difference is that I think it's talking about not temporal, but the eternal consequences of sin. In other words, Personal sin against God results in individual personal condemnation in hell for an eternity. I mean, he's talking about saying the soul that sins will die. He's not talking about physical death because that would just be a truism. Everybody dies. But he's saying that those who sin die eternally in the presence of God. And they suffer his wrath as he punishes them. So on judgment day, when you are judged... You will not be judged for the corporate sins of your culture. Even though you experience the effects of that in your culture in the here and now, you will be judged on the basis of your personal sin before God. And if the Bible speaks rightly, Romans chapter 3.23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in trouble, right? Because there's not a single person. Even if you say, I'm innocent of the corporate sins around me. I have nothing to do with Canadian sins. It doesn't matter. You're not going to be judged on what God thinks about Canada. You'll be judged based off of your own personal sin. See, what is so important for us to understand is that the Bible is not reductionistic. The Bible is not simplistic. The Bible understands the complexities of life and addresses them. God doesn't just affir- God's word doesn't just affirm that there are wicked systems that need to be dealt with but it also affirms the reality of a wickedness of a human heart, a sin-infected heart that actually needs to be dealt with as well. And this is so critical to our understanding today if we're going to be about doing any real good, I think, in this world. I know that there are many anti-racist activities, which I am grateful for and I think are doing a great thing in society today in dismantling these unjust systems. But the truth of the matter is, if sin really is universal, it's not good enough to simply dismantle the systems. You have to go farther. I think that the way that some of the movements sort of look at the problem saying, let's just get rid of the system and we'll fix things, I think it's problematic because it really is, to me, a 2D flattening of a 3D world. It's not so easy to simply look at the world and divide it up into categories of oppressed and oppressors. And if we just remove the system that sits between the two of them, everything will be fine and dandy. I think that's just way too simplistic to look at the world. I think the scriptures present the world in all of its 3D glory, glory as well as its goriness as well. People who are oppressors and victims need to be able to see that they are all sinners as well. And they need God's help in their individual lives to deal with their personal sin before him, as well as to deal with systemic sin in their society. And without a biblical framework, I think it becomes actually very, very dangerous to push for change. Let me show you something. Number three point here. God's word highlights the danger of not having a biblical foundation. So you take Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, which says this, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And this doesn't mean that because people don't go to university, they're being destroyed. He's talking about a lack of the knowledge of God here, okay? knowing his ways. 
Martin Luther King Jr., who was an activist leading the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s, himself understood very well the importance of having a biblical framework in having uh, civil rights activities. In fact, his arguments for equality are not so popular actually today because his arguments actually rest on a biblical framework. So specifically on the Bible's teaching that man is made in the image of God. And this was very powerful for him because it served as a strong argument against the people who were arguing for segregation and that blacks and other races were not worth as much as white individuals. So he used this to argue against them and it was very difficult to counter. However, that same theology regarding man made in the image of God also was immensely good for his fellow black African Americans who were empowered to be able to non-violently resist the people who were abusing them and mistreating them, even as they practiced civil disobedience with sit-ins and all the things that they did. Why? Because it allowed them actually to refuse to demonize their oppressors who were also made in the image of God. See, this was very different thinking from the other activists who were at work at that time. Martin Luther King Jr. was not the only one. For example, Malcolm X was another activist. You can also learn about uh, others, for example, the Nation of Islam, which had Wallace Muhammad who started it, and it was later passed on uh, to Elijah Muhammad. They actually taught that the white man was an irredeemable white devil, and you can go into their theology to show how they came to this conclusion, but it created a very different effect in their followers who were radically polarized against white people and hated them as devils. See, by affirming the image of God in man, King basically gave his people an extremely powerful biblical teaching, a divine reason for them to turn the other cheek and to not respond in hatred, but to respond in love to the people who were oppressing them. King himself said this, Our aim must never be to defeat or humiliate the white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. See, you see why this is so important? Because the danger, the danger for us as a society is that today's oppressed can actually turn into tomorrow's oppressors if they do not operate within a biblical framework. And this is exactly what I think has happened in numerous countries where in communist regimes, where people overthrowing the oppressors, the rich, you know what I mean, those who are crushing the people, themselves rose up and took power and eventually ended up oppressing the very people they said that they were going to protect. Why does that happen? The Bible has one very clear explanation, human sin. The Bible did this long before George Orwell published you know, his book on Animal Farm. Those of you who grew up in communist countries or come from places, you know, where you've seen this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. See, this is the same danger, I think, that the anti-racist movements today that are unhinged from a biblical perspective will face. If you're not grounded in the Bible, you run into this very danger. Now, I look on the internet and it seems like every single day there are new videos being published showing now racist, uh, you know, comments and racist uh, behavior that's just overt and on display. You can go on Twitter today and look up hashtag Karen's Gone Wild, for instance, and every day there's videos being posted. There. Just some are really sickening to watch. But in the midst of all of this, as I've been observing it and making my notes on it, I've noticed another really disturbing trend that I don't think many people are talking about. And that is for some people who are oppressed, in some cases I look at the videos, I don't think they're being oppressed. Some of these individuals going after their white oppressors 
are actually um, quite rude towards them, yelling at them, cursing them. In some cases I've watched, they seem to be provoking them and goading them on, even threatening them, saying, come on, just do something, do something. I'll make you go viral. And they're holding their phones up to their face. Now, in some sense, some of the people who are so racist, I get it why people say, well, they deserve that to go viral. In other cases, they, they do seem to be going after people and unnecessarily provoking them as well. I look at that and I go, why is that happening? You know, why are they trying to destroy their lives to make some of these people go viral? In some cases, going too far. And here's my concern. In the midst of trying to destroy, anti -ra uh, destroy racism and to root that out in our society, it is possible to actually gloat, go, gloat over other people and take great pleasure in seeing their lives destroyed. And this is really dangerous. Is it right to fight for the destruction of sinful structures in our society? Yes, it is. But is it right to curse and to hate other people, even if they've done wrong things towards you, and to harbor contempt for them in your heart? According to God's word, no. It is not. And this is the corrective, I think, that the Bible gives to our culture. See, a movement that actually fights hatred by using hatred will never be able to extinguish the flames, I think, of injustice. You will only shove it down beneath the surface, but you'll never cool the human heart. Only God's word and the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that offers forgiveness to sinners will allow you to fight for justice in, from a position of humility, Understanding that you yourself would be condemned before God if God did not forgive you. Make sure that as you fight for justice, you honor the image of God is in that other human being. And though they might oppress you, you seek their good in offering them love. They may be undeserving, but so were you. And God showed you his grace. How can you not do that for another human being? This is why the gospel makes so much of a difference when it comes to fighting for what is right in society. And dealing, I think, with the roots of systemic racism. Number four here, I want to say something else. God's word declares that we belong to one human race. And this is really important for us to understand because I know that the words race and ethnicity are thrown around in our culture today, but they aren't really well defined. And the question is, what do they actually mean? Let me say this. Uh, Dr. Nina Jablonski, an anthropologist at Pennsylvania State, defines race and ethnicity this way. She says, Race is understood by most people as a mixture of physical, behavioral, and cultural attributes. Ethnicity recognizes differences between people, mostly on the basis of language and shared culture. Okay. Now, there's, there's truth to this, but I just want to say at the outset, I've talked about race, I've talked about nations. The Bible doesn't actually classify people in this way. Okay. The Bible acknowledges that there are nations and there are different people groups, ethno-linguistic groups, ethnicities that exist all over the world. But what the Bible does emphasize when you're talking about classifying people is that actually we all belong to the same human race, okay? There's no, nothing that makes me different from an African or a European with regards to how God sees us, okay? And as a human race, Acts 17, 26 says, And God, he made from one nation, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So in other words, we're all related to the human race through Adam, our first father. Jesus doesn't die for one particular group of people, but he dies for all, right? Red, yellow, black, and white. All are precious in his sight, and they're offered redemption for their sins. That's important for us to understand. So we belong to one human race made in the image of God. 
We might have differences in terms of culture and the way that we act, but that is not to say that one is inherently superior, has physical characteristics that make, or spiritual characteristics that make them better than another group of people. Very important for us to keep in mind. Those four things. Now, church, as we wrap this up and think about how does this apply to us as Christians, what are we supposed to do you know, as Christians who understand that these things exist in this world? And I think that the answer to this for us as a church is in two parts. One is we need to be thinking about what we do outside the walls of the church and what we need to be doing inside the church in order to address this. So firstly, what do we need to do outside in the world? I think that as Christians, we need to be fighting for policies, for laws, and doing things in society that help root out racist conduct in our communities and in our neighborhoods. We should take jobs in law enforcement. We should take jobs in law. We should, take in, we should become politicians. We should become teachers and educators. And in all that we say and that we do, we should fight for things that help people not oppress minority groups amongst us. In every area of society, I would echo King's words that he took from the book of Amos to basically say, let justice roll down like the waters. And let righteousness be like an ever-flowing stream. That's what we should aspire to in our country. We should always, as Christians, let our speech be seasoned with salt, being gracious, and also giving grace to everybody who hears us and not have filthy speech or speech that does not represent Jesus wherever we go, that tears down other human beings that are made in the image of God. But at the same time, I think we should develop, yes, programs that tackle poverty, inequality, and give ourselves to making sure that injustice does not flourish in our land. However, at the same time, we need to recognize that the real problem here is not systemic racism, but what I'd like to call systemic racism. And that the real problem is that the reality of sin totally corrupts the human heart, and that not a single person can escape the reaches of sin. And until you deal with the systemic reality of sin living inside the human heart that pervades every single human being, you will never accomplish the change that you ultimately hope to get. If you don't grasp that, you know, you won't be able to make lasting change. You know, there's a famous saying that's often given, and I heard repeat in the States, guns don't kill people, people kill people. I think the same thing can be said uh, true with regards to racism as we think about what to do as Christians. I would say um, systems don't kill people, but actually sinners kill people. Sinners do. Systems are just the loaded weapons that sinners take in their hands to use to murder and kill other people that are around them and to oppress them. That's actually what's going on. If you don't grasp that, that sin is at the root, you won't know how to deal with the systems. I love what Cal Thomas, an American columnist and uh, journalist, an author said about the root problem of racism. He writes this. This DNA problem is called sin by preachers and cannot be altered by government programs. If it could have, it would have by now. We have spent $22 trillion on anti-poverty and racial justice programs, according to a 2014 study by the Heritage Foundation, on the outcome of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. The results have been minimal at best because they never cured fundamental causes of poverty a changed heart is key, something government lacks the power to achieve. Very wise words from this journalist. See, 
Governments can't change the human heart, and we know that, but grace can change the human heart. And that's why justice and compassion ministries that are done in the name of Jesus Christ by Christians need to be coupled with bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. So we have to be about transforming not just people's physical lives, but their eternal souls as well. Now, that's what we need to do outside the church. We must take part in this in our society. But I think we also need to do something else as well inside the church. Now, most of us here in Vancouver do not deal with overt racism in the church. But I would say that in Vancouver, churches still deal with the problem of subtle racism. Like, I think it's great to see ethnic churches going out, preaching the gospel, and doing things. But at the same time, it also pains me to look at some ethnic churches and to feel that the body of Jesus Christ is badly divided. I don't think that was the way it was supposed to be. You know, if you look at Acts chapter 6, you realize that the early church faced a problem which almost could have led them to divide along racial or ethnic lines. For example, we see in Acts 6 that the Greek-speaking widow, Jew, uh, Greek-speaking uh, Christians who had widows felt that their widows weren't being cared for as well as the Hebrew or the Aramaic-speaking Jews, and they needed to do something about it. Now, they could have just divided and said, we'll have the Greek-speaking church over here, and then we'll have the Aramaic-speaking church over here, and done that. But they don't. They actually grapple, wrestle with the problem, and they make a decision to actually appoint a number of men to oversee this mercy and compassion ministry of the church, and they pick, they pick Greek-speaking Jews to deal with the problem as well, which is incredible. You see, the incredible unity of the body of Jesus Christ. They don't just divide. You know, when you look at this and you follow through the book of Acts, you see the same thing come up again, and you see what God thinks about it. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, we learn more actually about church unity as the church grows. Now, when the apostles at, Han- at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is really a stunning text, because it's unique in the New Testament. These people actually are baptized in Jesus' name. They confess their sins, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't see this anywhere else, actually, in the Scriptures. And the question is, how does that work? What's actually going on in this text? Now, I know that for some believers today, uh, they would argue that this is what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's a second experience that you get, that not all Christians get, and that you need to have to be full of the Holy Spirit to do powerful ministry for the Lord. I I don't think that's actually the case, and I wouldn't support that. I I think that really the Scriptures are clear that you receive the Holy Spirit when you are born again, and the Holy Spirit empowers you. Yes, you can be... Uh, living in sin and not being filled with the Spirit and therefore not useful for God, but I wouldn't classify that as a special second experience. I think what's better to explain about what actually is going on here is that the delay of the giving of the Spirit was actually meant to communicate two unique things in redemptive history with regards to the newborn church. So for one, everybody needed to understand that the newborn church would not fit in the old wineskins of Judaism, but was actually something completely different And in fact, in the newborn church, it will be composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that salvation was available to all peoples, regardless of your background, okay? You didn't need to become a Jew in order to become a Christ follower. The second thing I think that it communicates is this, is that the church of Samaria and the church of Jerusalem were to be built on the one and same foundation, the same apostles, the same prophets, serving the same Lord. 
one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one church. Yes, there was a church that met at Samaria. Yes, there was a church that met at Jerusalem. But the issue is that they had the one and the same source, the one same apostolic teaching, the one same word of God. And as a result of that, I think what it communicated was the fact that the newborn church would be a united church no matter where it was geographically dispersed. You never see this occur later in the scriptures. You know, again, so I think it was unique to this period of time. And if this is true, thinking about how the early church prized unity and the way that even God allowed for his apostles to go lay hands on the Samaritan church and to give them the Holy Spirit and to show that the church is unified, how much more so do we as a church need to fight for unity amongst the people of God, especially along ethnic lines? This is why I think that we as Churches need to be planting multi-ethnic, diverse churches in a city, especially a city like Vancouver. Now, I know that multi-ethnic churches have a great potential for conflict. Of course, it's so easy to give in to the temptation to sin and to look at people and say, oh, those Chinese, oh, those Russian people, oh, those Koreans, the things that they do, the way that they pray, the way that they say. It's so easy to do that. But if we're not careful... Even if we rightly recognize sinful tendencies amongst our brothers and sisters who come from different cultural backgrounds, we need to be so careful that we do not decry the speck that is in our brother's eye without acknowledging the cultural logs that are in our own eyes. We've got to be so careful when we do that. Now, when it comes to us as churches, churches that are full of different ethnicities and people working together in peace in harmony, in love, and in unity, actually are a huge blessing to this world because we communicate to them that the, that the church is not a social club, but that it's a group of people who are bonded together by not just activity, but by a common mission and a common blood, Jesus' blood that flows inside of our veins. And that's way thicker than any of our cultural preferences and things that we like. You know, church, let me ask you guys who are sitting here and those online, do you love the church? Do you love our church? Do you really love the people in our church, especially those who are not like you? I'm not just talking about the different races and ethnic groups in our church. I'm talking about young, old as well. Do you love all the people of our church? Including their idiosyncrasies, whether they are personal or cultural. You know, in marital conflicts, it's actually so easy to give in to the temptation to think that your spouse is out to get you, especially when you're in a heated argument, right? You think to yourself, they always do this. I've told them a million times. They don't, they don't respect me. They don't love me. Why do you keep doing You know, you could easily go down this road. You know, but as Christians, you know, we have to think about what God actually has done and if two believing Christians who are genuinely following the Lord Jesus Christ are willing to look at their own sin and take a step back from the moment, you know, you have to stop and remind yourself that that kind of thinking is actually wrong. Not only wrong, biblically speaking, but against the marriage vows that we took. You know, when my wife and I run into conflict, we always have to remind ourselves when we're in the heat of the moment, "Hun, you are not my enemy. God put us together on the same team. So let's just take a minute now to stop and remember that, even as we're going through conflict. What God has joined together, let no man separate. 
And whether that's in a verbal argument with your spouse or an argument with other believers in the church, I think the same thing applies. See, God knit together the body of Christ. One body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one united church. And if the church is united, let us also not tear apart what God himself has put together. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says this about what the Son has done. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You know what I love about this verse? You know why it's so profound? It's because it says here, Reconciliation between the people groups of the world does not need to be achieved by us. It's actually already been achieved by Jesus Christ. And what we need to do is live in light of that reality and practice it. It's the blood that has achieved this for us, not our own self-effort. See, if we really truly love each other, we will serve each other and love each other as family members of the kingdom of God. And that includes people who are unlike us, whether multi-generational or multi-ethnic, right? You know, there's so many different things that you can do. For the elderly and for those who are not like us, you can spend time with each other. You know, cross over your, 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 your little bubble and go and meet other people in our church who are unlike you. When it comes to ethnic groups, for example, you can spend time going to different events, learning about their culture, learn a bit about the language as well, worship together, you know, with them. You know, I remember when I was at Southern Seminary, meeting a white girl who was married to a, a Chinese husband. And she taught herself, she would write out English um, uh, phonetic pronunciation of Chinese worship songs, even though she couldn't speak any Chinese. And she would lead worship for the Chinese people. And it meant a lot to the Chinese who were watching her, knowing she didn't understand what she was saying, but that she would take the effort to do this and sing for the people of God. Spoke volumes to the church about their love for them. You know, for myself, I have a desire to become all things to all people so that by any means I might save some as well. That's the operating principle of my life. It was Paul's and it's mine as well. And that includes for me learning about cultures and learning about language, especially as a pastor in a diverse city like Vancouver. You know, um, I remember once, funnily enough, attending a Russian pastor's conference. It was hilarious. I really loved that conference. It was so good, the teaching and also the singing. And I remember actually... Um, singing along with everybody, uh, you know, a very common Christian song that most of you, you would know the lyrics. It goes like, Slav Dusha, Gospoda, Slav Dusha, you know, and then it goes, yeah, and, you, know, you know how it goes, Blaga Slavinia, Gospoda, right at the end. And so we're all singing this stuff, you know, together. And, and I'm there as well, and I know what's happening around me. As, as I'm singing, you know, and following along, because I can read it, I don't know what I'm saying, though, but I'm singing this stuff. You get the little glances backward, you know, and then the whispers, to the spouse, and then they look back too, and then they quickly look away, right? Because it's too embarrassing, right? And I'm just chuckling, chuckling there to myself. And then after the service, you know, I, when I'm done singing, you know, the people, they, they come up to you, and, and I, know, I know what's going on in their, in their brains, right? You know, without, without them saying anything. And they say to me, uh, hello, like, where are you from? How you, how you speak Russian? And, you know, and then I, and I, I have to look at them and I say, I am... Um, I, I actually don't, you know, I'm, I'm a fraud. I, I can read this stuff, but I, I can't, I don't fully know, like, actually what I'm singing. Uh, you know, I, 
I like to think this is probably the closest I'll ever get to worshiping in tongues. You know, that is, my, my mind is unfruitful, though my spirit is rejoicing, you know. So I, I've really come to like that and enjoy it. It means a lot to the brothers and sisters around me who know that I don't speak the language but care enough as well to learn. And it's not just the Russian language. I do the same thing for Chinese. Some of you might be surprised to know that I actually didn't start learning Chinese until I was 17 years old. I was English-speaking before that. But I self-studied a lot more to learn how to read, work on the characters, and so on, because I really wanted to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are like me as well. And so I remember once when I was, um, my Chinese is actually really bad. I remember sharing the gospel with two girls who had come to our church for like a year. And um, at the end of that, as I was talking about Jesus, they had come to the conclusion that God was real. And I asked them, how do you know this? And they said, well, when you talk to us in Chinese, normally your Chinese is very bad. But when you talk to us about the gospel in Jesus, we understand everything. So we know God must be real. And so in that burn of my Chinese skills, I realized that truly God's power is made perfect in weakness. In fact, sometimes you actually do have an advantage if you don't come from a particular culture because the little that you learn to accommodate another cultural group goes a long way, you know, in terms of communicating your love for them. So I would encourage you, if you don't speak another language, if you don't have experience working in another culture, learn something, learn a little bit, and you'll be surprised at how much love you can demonstrate by doing that especially in the church. You know, church, my dream is for us to be a congregation full of different ethnicities and people groups, Farsi-speaking, Russian-speaking, Chinese-speaking. I hope to see a Korean ministry started here at our church one day, but not just a bunch of groups of people who share some common space but don't share our lives as well, a people who are truly united and are truly one. And that's my hope for us. You know, we are new creations in Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, we of all people have every reason to work together across ethnic lines because we share a common blood. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say to the whites of his day, the Negro is your brother. And I like to say to us, church, the nations of the world are your brothers and sisters as well. May God help us to fight against sin, not only outside the church, but inside the church and communicate to the world the reality that Jesus Christ reconciled not only the nations of the world, but all the peoples here to his Father himself. And in that is our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's so good, God, to be able to worship together as one church and to know that Christ Jesus destroyed the hostilities that exist between all the peoples of the world and have undone this curse of Babel. Father, I pray that you would help us to be active in fighting sin inside the church and also outside of the church, and that we would become all things to all people, so that by all means we might save some. God, you did this for us, and I pray, O oh God, that you would make us agents of reconciliation in a world that so desperately needs to know the gospel. So, Father, even as we worship, even as we live, Help us, O oh God, to represent Jesus in all that we say and all that we do. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.